As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah. Hello, this is Richard Mill from Deal in Kent, and you're listening to the always compelling Tennis Podcast. Hello and welcome, folks, to the Tennis Podcast, introduced there by Richard from Deal in Kent, although I detect there a sneaky little, lovely, lilting Scottish accent. So, um, yeah, thank you very much, Richard, for that lovely introduction and for calling us compelling, which is which is definitely what Matt noted down from it. He said, we've got an intro He's called us compelling. Thank you very much, Matt. How are you doing? <laughs> yes, that is entirely true. That is what I remembered, and I'm I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Now, as we disclosed last week, David is on his holidays. Happy holidays, David. He's got a tan already. He's wearing sunglasses. There seems to be some sort of microclimate going on in Croatia where it's still summer. Enjoy it, David. It's it's lovely here. I am wrapped in a heated blanket as we speak, but. We don't need you, quite frankly, because uh, as tentatively promised on the last pod, we do indeed, confirmed, have a very special guest for today's show. And that special guest is 10-time WTA Finals champion, Pam Shriver. Pam, thank you for being with us. How are you doing? Well, thanks for that compelling introduction (laughs) of me. 10, I mean, thanks to Martina, uh, responsible for sharing all 10 of those doubles titles i darn it sabatini got in the way in 88 for one singles in the final but that's okay looking forward to this version yeah that, now look i know we've got we've got tennis to wrap up from last week we will cover off all of the 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 tennis that has been happening we've had basel we've had vienna we've had we've had zuhai we'll talk about all of that but i do think we need to f- start with the WTA finals in Cancun and the build-up to the WTA finals. As we come to you now, uh, we've had one day or one night of action. That means two singles matches, two doubles with with more to come tonight from the group stages. But I think we need to kind of start bigger picture than the actual tennis and kind of the whole setup, the stadium not being ready on time, quite frankly. And and the comments coming from from the players pre-tournament to the effect that they're not happy. They're not happy with uh, with the state of affairs 
just days before one of the biggest tournaments on the WTA calendar. We've had Arena Sabalenka complaining in her pre-tournament press conference about the situation and then doubling down with a very strong statement on Instagram after her victory last night over Maria Sakkari. Six love, six one, incidentally, that victory. Um, an incredible performance from her to kick things off. But she said, I'm happy that I was able to stay focused tonight, overcome the conditions and play well. I have to say, though, that I'm very disappointed with the WTA and the experience so far at the WTA finals. As I said in my press conference, as a player, I really feel disrespected by the WTA. I think most of us do. This is not the level of organisation we expect for the finals. To be honest, I don't feel safe moving on this court a lot of the time. The bounce is not consistent at all and we weren't able to practice on this court until yesterday for the first time. It's just not acceptable to me with so much on the line and so much at stake. All that said, I definitely want to show my appreciation for the local tournament organisers, everyone that built the court at the last minute and everyone that's working here at the event. I know it's not their fault and I want them to know, as well as the Mexican fans, that I love them and appreciate them. I'm very happy to be in Mexico. (laughs) I'm just upset with the WTA and the situation and Ons Jabeur, who is yet to play. She'll play tonight as we record and she, of course, is uh, a member of the... PTPA, the um, the recently-ish set-up Players' Union, she expressed a similar sentiment in her pre-tournament press conference. She said, I'm not very happy that this is the first day we hit on the stadium. This is such a big event. We should have been able to be ready and hit on the court. Hopefully, this will never, ever, ever happen again like ever. Um, and while I appreciate the, the nod to uh, Taylor Swift's red era there... It's it's a pretty sorry state of affairs, isn't it? To to be going into one of the showpiece events in women's tennis and women's sport, quite frankly, and be having the marquee players, reasonably or not, no matter the extent to which you agree with them or think they're being fair, this is a sorry state of affairs to hear these players talking about their association and one of their biggest tournaments in this way. It's just, it's a bummer, Pam. It definitely is. Um, I was just doing some reflecting as, Catherine, you were reading, uh, because I I knew there was a lot of uh, comments and posts about the lack of proper preparation. And I suppose when you turn back to the U.S. Open, when we still didn't know where it was going to be, I guess we're not all that surprised. Um, Mexico dealt with a horrendous uh, hurricane last week. It hit the other side. I can imagine if you were the family that's been so amazing to women's tennis the last few years, especially since COVID. Uh, I, I refer to them as Gus Sr. and Gus Jr., the father-son. They're sort of at the core of this family that's helped put on you know, Guadalajara, both at a lower level, a thousand level, the WTA Tour Champions two years ago. I mean, this is a family that's put it out on the line. They didn't mean for it to be like this either, I'm sure. So it's sad. But at the same time, I want to I want to recall Madison Square Garden one year. We did not have one bit of practice before match time on the ter- on the match court because the garden, you know, hosts the Knicks and the as well as the NHL Rangers and concerts. And we didn't, we, so there was a time when, when this event was in its absolute peak, when it was at Madison Square Garden, where there was no 
preparation on the match court. So this has happened before. I guess it tests being professional, but having unsafe conditions once they do get out there to play matches, now that starts to get really uncomfortable. Um, so I feel there's no, I, you can't fix it now, right? There's no way to right the ship. It's just, it's just brutal. So we'll see who mentally can deal with it all. And that's who's going to win it. I think Pam's words there saying this has happened before is is probably what strikes me the most about this. Obviously, Pam's referred there to the specific incident at, at Madison Square Garden of of not being able to practice leading into the event. I'm I'm more talking about this feels like three years in a row, really, where the WTA finals has been a bit of a letdown of an event. I think I think two years ago in in Guadalajara they got very lucky because it was still a very late decision to to announce to have it there but it ended up being you know there were really good vibes and I think they were helped by the fact that Paolo Beloso and Garbini Muguruza were in the field and there was a sort of Hispanic connection and there was you know it was it was a good tournament but the preparation for it was not ideal either it wasn't ideal for fans they didn't know where it was going to be last year we we had a similar situation where the decision to hold it in Fort Worth in Texas was just arrived at so late and it was this this cavernous arena and there were barely any fans there and it all felt like this big letdown. And then yesterday I, I turned on the singles matches and again I just felt like, oh, this this doesn't feel like the premium WTA event that it should be. And, you know, I'm I'm very much part of the camp over the years that the ATP finals, for example, needed to move on from London. You know, I felt like that event was ready for a new home, but there's no doubt about it that having an established home, it was a massive deal. Every time you went to that event, it felt big, it felt premium, and it still feels premium in Turin. And the WTA, it's 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 hard to disagree with with those strong words from Sabalenka. They there were extenuating circumstances which we all understand, but the fact of the matter is that a few years in a row now, the WTA elite players have been have been let down by this by this event. And Anton Dubrov, uh, Sabalenka's coach, posted on Instagram that you know there was only a couple of practice courts. They weren't able to practice on the main stadium. There was only one stringer available. Um, yeah, it's just it just doesn't feel like the event of the WTA calendar, which is what it absolutely is and what it should feel like. And it's just such a shame. Well, and I think it's good you put into perspective the, the two years leading up to this year, because it's not Cancun in a vacuum. It's uh, Cancun, as you mentioned, Fort Worth last year. I was able to work for Tennis Channel, both Fort Worth and the Guadalajara uh, week two years ago. And then, of course, three years ago, they didn't have it. Mm. So it's... Um, I, I, now, I, I, I kind of once you sort of mention that, Matt, as well, I'm like, OK, the players can't keep this private. They can't. One of my things was we tried sometimes during my era not to air all the dirty laundry and try to get things done privately. Um, but obviously, there's such frustration year after year now. So I guess I'm like, OK, players, you got to use your platform, use your voice. It, it hurts to see the WTA just given I know this, the, the amount of money they paid out to try and make the tour go on during COVID, uh, you know, the, all the financial issues, it's like, it's very complicated. It's, it can't even be summed up in like two or three minutes. It's so complicated during this particular four to five year window. Crazy. And 
w- one of my instincts in a in a situation like this is is to cut the WTA some slack because nobody would like to put on a premium event a la Turin more than they would, right? No, nobody would love broadcast rights for women's tennis to be valued as highly by broadcasters and by the public as men's tennis than the WTA, right? I realise they're they're dealing with a world that doesn't value women's sport the way it should. And they they would love to have the marketing budget that that the ATP have. They should have the marketing budget that the ATP have. But we as a people <laughs> don't allow that to happen, right? Because of the value that not any individual, but we as a society place on women and women's sports relative to men. That's not something that's going to be fixed overnight. So uh, I'm always conscious that that is the situation that the WTA are dealing with. And yet I can't, that that's not a free pass, right? The fact that that is the situation puts extra onus on those that that do have a platform and a prominence within women's sport to to make the best of it, to show it off as as the incredible product that it is. And I, I can't help but feel that this isn't the best of a bad situation. I feel like there has to be some mismanagement here and that doesn't mean that people aren't doing their best and don't have the best of intentions but um and I don't you know I I don't know where to point the fingers because I don't know as you say Pam it's so so complicated and you you know it's no surprise to me that it was right down to the wire to get the stadium ready you know the, the the destination was only decided six weeks ago. I, there's a part of me that thinks, well, well done for getting it ready. <laughs> um, and it, that's just that's not the issue, is it? The issue is, as you described, Matt, you you turn it on and it doesn't feel like a premium event. This doesn't feel like something you go, wow, I want to watch this. This clearly matters and is important and is worthy of my time and attention in a world where there's lots of things trying to grab your time and attention. And that is, it's such a desperate shame, isn't it? And and add on to that the the potential injury risk, which Sabalenka refers to. I mean, look, time will tell with that, won't it? But just fingers, fingers crossed on that front. And sort of big picture, what's also slightly depressing about all this is it, it does feel like the solution to those sort of facilities problems and the solution to not knowing where the venue is going to be just a few weeks out and the sort of end game for all this in terms of all the noises that we're hearing is that this event may end up going to Saudi Arabia and of course that will solve a lot of the issues that the players are having I'm sure the facilities there will be sort of first class and all the hospitality and everything will be amazing and they will be treated very well but you know I guess what I'm saying is I would like to see some of the players apply some of the same energy that they're bringing to bringing up the problems with the staging of this event here and maybe tackle some of the bigger issues that that would be in play if if the sport did choose to to hold the premium WTA event in Saudi Arabia. And they all skirted that question pretty much at the US Open when the reports were happening. Um, and obviously it, it is totally a hypothetical at the moment, but it does sound like that could potentially happen in the future. And yeah, I just, 
I always like it when players speak up and I, I hope they will speak up not only about their own sort of working conditions but also on some on some bigger picture issues if if the sport does end up going to Saudi Arabia. If the rumours are to be believed Saudi Arabia was earmarked as the destination for the finals this year and it was in part due to some of your colleagues Pam your counterparts speaking out in opposition to to the finals going to Saudi Arabia Martina and and, and Chrissy most notably that at least put pause on the WTA's plans. Now, I say rumours, you know, John Wertheim in particular was was reporting this, one of your colleagues at the Tennis Channel, so so pretty, you know, substantiated rumours. Um, how do you feel about the finals potentially going to that destination? Well, I'm not happy. I'm, I've gone on the record. I just see the global leading sport for women for 50 years in professional sports, really since U.S. Open in 73, we just celebrated 50 years of equality that started the ball rolling towards having all four majors be equal. And uh, it just, but, but at this point, given all the complications everywhere you turn, whether it's China, whether it's other parts of the world, who can bring this tournament up to the premier status? It's like, is it, really is that what we have to do we have to go to Saudi Arabia to make that happen I just kind of pause and I just like shake my head because I feel like there's got to be a better way but I mean the reason we're in this situation is exactly right I think they thought this some people in the WTA thought this year's championship would already be in Saudi Arabia and then they realized that couldn't happen so it's just it's a mess it's an absolute mess and I don't know how to there's some messes it's really hard to clean up and I have this every week now as a parent of three teenagers there's some messes that are hard to clean up and I don't know how you clean this up um let's get the other mess out of the way before we talk about the (laughs) the tennis shall we this is a slightly more fun mess I think and it is the uh what do they call it the iconic photo the iconic finals photo. They do this every year. The ATP finals do it as well. Of course, easy for men. Pop them in a suit. Boom. Done. Although although uh, there was one year, wasn't there, in London where they just gave up and sort of did the official photo in a sort it of It was the last year, dungeon. wasn't it? <laughs> it was in a dungeon and some of them were in sort of casual wear. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but generally speaking... Especially, I think, that piece of work. Wasn't that piece of work Medvedev? I think he was pretty casual. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw in my piece of work. Go ahead. <laughs> so, iconic photo shoot, uh, generally speaking. the uh, You have the eight singles players and the 16 doubles players and everybody's quite glammed up generally sort of cocktail dress or ball gown territory obviously the venue uh, for this finals is it's beach vibes my understanding was that the tournament were very keen on an all-white dress code it's a bit of a thing in mexico i believe um but obviously quite short notice quite difficult possibly for for players to to source uh, a white outfit at short-ish notice. So I believe uh, what happened was the all-white dress code was issued and then at the last minute there was somewhat of a softening 
of that dress code to allow a bit of flexibility and a bit of leeway to any players that were struggling to, to conform to the original dress code. And what we ended up with was, well, Matt, what, what did we end up with? <laughs> we ended up with seven players in white and Igor Svantec standing out in a red dress, just on her own in red. Hmm. Yep. (laughs) And again, I've made some inquiries. Again, my my understanding is that um, she was fine about it. You know, it was a bit of a joke among the players. And look, if that's me and I show up to um, a... an event in literally the opposite of the prescribed dress code um in fact i'm now having i'm having a very triggering memory this precise thing has happened to me uh (laughs) i'm 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 running home and i'm crying myself to sleep like there's there's no way i'm saying sure let's let's proceed with the photo shoot so good on Iga Svantec for for being a good sport and looking perfectly happy in those photos and apparently being perfectly happy, but it looks blooming weird, doesn't it, Pam? It it just looks weird. Yeah, it does. It's, it's, it looks like almost like an exclamation point in the middle of a sentence when it's not even the end of the sentence. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's funny. I had a little tip off that something like this was happening because a good friend of mine who lives here in LA, who's worked as a physical therapist on the WTA tour for over 30 years, we were talking and uh, she was like, I can't figure out what nice white outfit to bring. I go, well, what do you mean like a nice white outfit? I'm like, why does it have to be white? And she's like, well, they've told us we have to wear all white. And that's all I knew. I was like, are you talking about on the court when you go out for treatment? They were like, no. And then I realized it was a party. And then when I saw the photo, I'm like, whoa, it wasn't just the players. It was like the whole party. Everybody was supposed to be wearing white. So then I Googled what what's going on with all white parties in Mexico. And I found there is like you know, these things that happen. And I don't know, it's just, oh, well, I guess in the scheme of uh, all the mess ups, uh, the scarlet dress is fine. (laughs) That's it, isn't it? Like, if this is something that's happening, if this is like one sort of funny blip in an otherwise beautifully smooth tournament, it's just that it's a funny blip. But in context, it ends up looking like a metaphor for for the mess that is potentially unfolding. But look, we're we're a day in. Um, There are still seven days to go, six days to go, seven days to go. And there is potential for some fantastic tennis because it's an awesome field. I really think, look, it's it's a real shame. Karolina Mukova has had to uh, withdraw and... Um, we will watch that injury situation eagerly because it's been one of the delights of 2023 that she has been able to be a, a regular factor at, at the top of the game. So that is a shame. But but that aside, I really think this is an awesome field. It's an awesome draw. Look, however they'd fallen, it would have been an awesome draw. But what we've ended up with is the Bacala group. Pronunciation, verification, Matt? Sounds and good. translation. What is a bacala? I believe it's a municipality or area in Mexico, because I was also confused. Okay, right. Great. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, The bacala group is the world number one, Arena Sabalenka. And by the way, that 
that number one ranking is up for grabs. There's a tussle between Sabalenka and Shriontek this week. Uh, so Sabalenka, Rabakina, Pagula and Sakari, And that's the group that has already kicked off. Pagula beat Rabakina last night, 7-5-6-2. She won 10 of the last 12 games after Rabakina served for the first set at 5-3. A really erratic performance from Rabakina, 35 unforced errors over those two sets. And then we also had, as I mentioned earlier, Sabalenka beating Sakari, uh, who's coming as the alternate for Mukovic. Six love, six one. She had three match points for a double bagel there. Uh, and the other group is the Chetumal group, which is Igor Svantec, Coco Goff, Onsjaba and Marketa Vondrosheva. And they kick off tonight. Uh, Pagula Rabakina. Matt, mm. what did we think? Felt a bit like Rebecca was feeling the pressure of being bumped onto the backhand list. To be honest, because that uh, that shot was was not good. It was it was my first chance to to watch her since putting her on my list, and well, I was I was a bit disappointed. I have to say, um, she started well in this match. You know, she was she was the one who took the lead, as you said, and and her serve was really jumping up off off the court. It's a very bouncy court, and it was really taking the kick on her serve well. And I thought, okay, this looks like maybe good conditions for Rabatkina. But then, well, she got broken five times after that, and that has been a bit of a theme for Rabatkina over the last few months. Having having that brilliant serve, one of the best serves in the game. Not being able to protect it and having it broken a lot, it's its something that certainly wasn't happening to her at the start of the season, but has been happening a lot recently. And Pagula seemed to get used to the court, used to the speed of it, and and just did what Pagula does and, and played a very good, solid match uh, without being spectacular. But I was pleased for her because last year she had a an absolutely terrible time in, in Fort Worth, losing all, all of her singles and doubles matches. And it felt like, you know, she needed another go at this event because she was out of steam last year, whereas this year she came in a little bit fresher. She's unbeaten in, in singles in Mexico, having having won um, the WTA 1000 event there in, in Guadalajara in the past. So I know we're not at sea level. Um, sorry, we're not at altitude in, in Cancun like they are in, in Guadalajara, but it, it does seem like she likes the atmosphere. She likes the vibe in, in Mexico. Um, so really good start for Pagula, but I don't know, Rebecca. it strikes me that there's maybe a bit of a battle for number one going on, but kind of a bit of a battle for sort of player of the year as well. And I, I guess I guess I'm mainly looking at the major champions there, you know, and especially Sviontek and, and Sabalenka. They feel like the two best players of the year. But Rebecca was right there with them at the start of the year. You know, we were we went early, but we were talking about the big three and and Rebecca was part of that conversation and she hasn't won a title since since the clay court swing, I don't think, and just feels like there's been a bit of a drop off in in level and and performance from her, and and I think we saw that sort of inconsistency yesterday against uh, against Pagula. And, and Matt, you brought up the serve, right? We know how important that is for Rubakina, and just looking at the numbers, if if you just saw the numbers and you didn't know which number belonged to which player, first serve points one. One player was at 80%, that's 24 of 30, and the other player at 55.6, just 20 of 36. You might think going in that Pagula would have the the, the, uh, the lower number, 
right back in just 55%. And so, so definitely having a problem on serve, you can consider the strength of it at the beginning of the year. But I just want to go back to Bergula. She may be the one that emotionally, mentally can kind of deal with all that's going on in Cancun uh, and the lack of a, you know, what everybody else is complaining. And let's just see what Pagula, who so, has such great emotional IQ, both on and off the court. Let's see if she isn't there or Coco, the two Americans, to like reel in this title. She's also on the player council, isn't she, Jessica Pagula? I get the impression she's a real diplomat behind the scenes. So she kind of has, it, like, if she is frustrated and angry, you know, whatever, um, she's kind of got an outlet. For, for all of those emotions and a a way to feel like she can do something about it rather than just sort of being pent up and irritated. I feel like that's probably quite a healthy place to be. And it's an interesting one with Pagula and Goff having counted themselves out early of the Billie Jean King Cup finals. And I'm sure that would have been a wrench for them. But as gutted as I am for the Billie Jean King Cup, I get it after the after the experience of, of last year and and the, the turnaround time-wise and geographically being potentially even more whiplash-inducing this year, I I totally understand why they've had to make that choice. But, you know, it is a statement of intent. It is they have had, they've sacrificed something quite big in order to focus on these WTA finals. And, yeah, it, it kind of puts them at... The, the singles and the doubles title for both of them and success in those, it put, puts it at even more of a premium, I think. Sorry, Matt, I thought you were nodding like I've got something to say, but it was just... I was just nodding, great point. Nodding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, what matches do we have tonight, Matt, from the Chetumal group? We have Svantec against... Vondrosheva. Vondrosheva, and we have Goff against Jabur. Okay. Uh, would anybody care to make predictions <laughs> for the WTA finals? It's tough, isn't it? Because we've seen we've seen four of them play. We haven't seen we haven't seen the other group play yet, I, but I'll take predictions anyway. I think the woman in red is going to be also hard to beat. I think Sviantec, uh, I, I actually like her response overall since losing the number one ranking, seeing Coco Golf win the U.S. Open. I, I feel like I feel like Iga may not win it, but I think she's going to play well. Um, Vondrosova, who knows? I'm never, I'm never going to count her out again after what she did at Wimbledon, but I don't, I don't see Vondrosova uh, winning this championship. I think Coco Goff is the other fascinating one. I always I think in this era to see how players play in the months after they win a major is really interesting. And you know, Pagula got the 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 win that that they were 0 for six last year, 0 for twelve if you combine both Goff's and Pagula's record. But now it's Goff's turn. And I think if Goff can beat Jabur, I, I think your winners will be either. Fiontek, Bagula, or Goff. That's I know that's not that's almost half. That's the almost field. half the I'm field, sorry, Pam. But... This is this is real <laughs> know, replacing David. You've done well. Outrageous. <laughs> Look, if I had David. if I had shown up in a red cocktail dress to a party with the dress code of what white smart casual, I would think, oh my god, I, I simply have to go and win the tournament now. That's the only. <laughs> 
that's the only way I can rescue this week. Mm. So I'm, I'm going to go Shriontek. I'll give a uh, nod to Laura Robson on on commentary last night here in the UK um, because she was talking about the conditions and she was saying that actually she feels like those conditions and that court can can actually suit everyone in the field. And this was during the first match. And then she said, except Zachary. I think it's going to be really bad for Zachary. And then, of course, Zachary gets gets blown out and only wins one game in the match. So I think that's that sounds like a good call from from Laura Robson there. And look, I think that's a very compelling point that you've made about the sort of calmness of Jessica Pagula versus clearly how frustrated Arena Sabalenka is. And I feel like Sabalenka would be my pick. I feel like fast conditions where she can kind of dominate opponents, it would be it would be on her racket. But if she's frustrated, which she clearly is, that doesn't feel conducive necessarily to playing her best tennis. And I, I, I thought she was okay against Zachary, but really Zachary was just a non-factor in that match. I didn't think Sabalenka quite even had her best tennis despite the scoreline. Um, I'm pretty convinced by Sviantec post-US Open and and the way she won uh, the title in Beijing. She's she's drawn Goff again in the group. Those two are, it's like a moth to a flame. Those two, they always seem to be next to each other in the draws and, and playing each other. I'm fascinated to see that match up again. Igor Sviantec would be my favourite. They're the they're the Alex de Menor and Andy Murray of uh, oh, of trauma. women's tennis. Sorry, I didn't mean to trigger anyone with that <laughs> reference. Uh, the doubles in Cancun is the Mahahual Group, uh, which features Jessica Bago- uh, Jessica Goff. Oh dear, Jessica Bagula and Coco Goff, uh, Krejcika Vasiliakova, Zvonareva Siegmund, and Dabrowski so, Routliff. So that means we get Siegmund Goff, which I'm excited oh, about. Yes, yes. <laughs> Excellent pick, Matt. Uh, they got work to do already, Goff and Baguli, because they lost their opener last night to Routliff Dabrowski, 7-6-6-3. Then we have the Maya Khan group, which features uh, Hunter Mertens, Aoyama Shibahara, Scherz and Kravchik and Melikar Martinez and Perez. And that kicked off with Shibahara and Aoyama, Shibahara and Aoyama beating Scherz and Kravchik, 7 5 6 Two, so the fact that we've got Goff and Pagula in opposing singles groups, but obviously in the same doubles groups, means I think there's going to have to be some some nifty scheduling. Well, I mean, there's already been some nifty scheduling, hasn't there? Because we've had one doubles match from uh, from each group. So uh, yeah, we'll try and keep on top of all of that. And interestingly, the the doubles players. Sorry to keep coming back to the clothes. The doubles <laughs> players all were in were in screaming colour. At the um, it, it, they'd got the same memo as Iga Svantec for the photo. Strange. Anyway. I didn't get any memo. I, I didn't get any invitation. No memo. Nothing. That's why I'm wearing my Australian Open orange <laughs> sweatshirt here, <with> Bugs Bunny. <laughs> it's making me excited for for the Australian Open, Pam. I love it. Not that I wasn't already excited, but doubly so. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. You may know that I'm into my cooking and I particularly like it when Catherine and Matt come to Solihull for meetings so that I can, you know, show off with my culinary talent. However, even I can do with a bit of help sometimes and being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and cook times is pretty appealing to me and Home Chef's meals, well, they're effortless. 
Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. It's economical too. Home Chef customers save on average $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free shipping on your first box and free dessert for life at homechef.com forward slash tennis. That's homechef.com forward slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. homechef.com forward slash tennis and you must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. We move on to Zhuhai and this is the portion of proceedings during which I am most delighted that you are here instead of David Pam because David would quite frankly be insufferable if he was here uh, because his big Beatrice Haddad Meyer prediction has finally come off uh, a year and a half late but he predicted Beatrice Haddad Meyer or Haddad Meyer I believe we um, we should be calling her I believe that's the correct pronunciation uh, she won not only the singles title at the WTA Elite Trophy in Zuhai, but the doubles as well uh, the doubles alongside Veronica Kunimitova they beat Kato and Suchi Sutiyadi, uh, 6-3-6-3 in that final. And she beat Zhang Xinwen, 7-6, 7-6 in a cracking singles final that, I mean, it was already fantastic. But if, if Zhang Xinwen had just been fully fit for that, I really think it could have been an all-timer. It had just all the makings of of an absolute epic. But she got herself over the line, hauled herself over the line, did Hadaj Meyer. And uh, that was after having beaten Madison Keys, Caroline Garcia, Darik Kazakina in uh, in the group stages. I mean, it, it in the words of David Law, I'm I'm loath to to quote him or, or reference him any more than is strictly necessary in this portion, but these might just be results, and I'm referring to, to Hadaj Meyer and, and Zhang Xinwen here. These might be results at this time of year that that really do have relevance for for next year. I, I really do feel, and I know we have said this before countless times, we've been here before, but I really do feel like Hadaj Meyer and, and Zhang Xinwen can use this as a platform and a springboard and do... Cue very vague prediction here. Do big things in 2024. Discuss, Pam. Well, um, I've watched very little tennis since the U.S. Open concluded, but the most tennis that I have watched since was actually Zhuhai. Uh, it's a tournament Donna Vekic was able to slide in. I watched Donna uh, lead 4-2 in the final set against Zhang Quinwen in the first round. Um, so I watched... Uh, I watched that match pretty closely. I, I think what Jen Chen Wen has raised the level of her game incredibly. I think she's dealt with a loss of win to set as her coach to the Osaka camp. There's there's an example of turning adversity and flipping it to a positive. And I give, I don't know her well, but I give her a lot of credit for that. I, I was lucky this year about three or four times Donna practice with Beatrice Hadajmaya and I'm so impressed by her work ethic, her fitness, um, her team, very, very professional, as most teams are. Um, and look, being a lefty, this is what Navratilova did time and time again, win a year-ending championships. I know it was the second year. 
championship, but to win singles and doubles in 2023, I just give it up. And what a huge payday. I believe I saw if you ran the table in singles, it was because I looked at it for Donna in case she ran the table, <laughs> 650000 I think it's like $650,000, not including the doubles. So this changes her life, her year. And I, I do agree with her lefty game having gotten the semis and pushed Iga at Roland Garros. I think David's prediction, it's possible in the next two years that she could win a major. Wow. Silence. <laughs> More possible, if you had to pick one of Zhang Xinwen and Beatrice Adajmaya. In her career, I'd go Zhang Xinwen. In the next two years, I might take the big lefty from Brazil. Interesting. I'm always, I, I find her utterly compelling, Hadajmai, because even as much as I've watched her now, every time when I start watching her, I, I still expect her to hit bigger than she does. I expect her to be a different type of player just from the look of her. But she's not, she's a, she's such a street fighter, isn't she? She's Saris Rebez Tormo in the body of Lindsay Davenport. <laughs> Um, and look, she she does have a big hit on her. It's almost like Guillermo Fis, who does have big weapons, but that's just not the type of tennis that he wants to play. He wants to play more kind of Andy Murray style of tennis. It's I, I find her really interesting for, for for other reasons as well. But but she just she kind of always catches me off guard. And I do wonder whether that's an improvement, an evolution that she maybe does need to make in order to become a major champion because it's it's incredible the way she battles through so many tough matches, but they do take their toll. And that was something in Zuhai last week. I think one of the reasons David picked Beatrice Haddad-Meyer to win that tournament was because he had a little bit of inside information having having spoken to her on the eve of that tournament and he and he said that she seemed really fresh and ready for that tournament and I think the end of season is a is a tournament where you know some players are limping across the finish line aren't they and she was she was ready and I think maybe one of the reasons she was ready was something that was quite low-key but really horrific was she she suffered a terrible hand injury in in Guadalajara. I don't know. It was six weeks ago or so. In in the shower, a, a shower incident. Yeah, I, th- right. I think it kind of like exploded on her, and and it was burns. I think on her hand, and um, she started the Asian swing with tape on her hands because she still wasn't sort of fully recovered from that. Didn't do particularly well, and didn't didn't win too many matches. But consequently, arrived in in Zhuhai with with maybe a little bit of freshness, a bit of a, perhaps a bit of a feeling of, I don't know, luck perhaps that it wasn't worse and that, and that she was able, able to play and compete. Um, and that sort of carried her through and it was really noticeable in, in Zhuhai how, how efficiently she was winning compared to a lot of matches that I associate with her. You know, it was a, it was a real battle in the final. It was a straight set to win, but it was three hours, but before then, she'd been pretty dominant in her matches, and that felt like a slight elevation from her. And it feels like she needs to do that if she's going to win a major. And she's capable because she's she's such a good competitor, and she's also got a you know got weapons, got a good game, got that lefty lefty awkwardness. And it would be great to see because I think she could do really big things for tennis in 
in that region of the world as well if um if she does continue to have great results because we saw we saw the amazing support that she got at Roland Garros this year and I'd love to see that around the world as well and I think Zhang Xinwen did just totally hit the wall all of her matches were three setters and she was playing with a with a bandaged leg but she's made big improvements in in the last few weeks as well and I, I feel like the ceiling of her game is is so high and watching her unlock her own talent is going to be uh, such a such a fun thing to watch over the next few years I hope those are all great points, Matt, but all I've just heard is accusation of insider trading uh, <laughs> against David Law and his prediction this week. Do we need to introduce a new a new rule? Uh, that was also a little teaser for an upcoming episode of uh, Tennis Relived, by the way, that, that Matt's just dropped there, that, like a little Easter egg. Love that. Um, how did Donna find Zuhai, Pam? Like, you, are you a fan of that event? It didn't used to exist in your day right it's I know, new, and, it's like a yeah. plate in tournament form right <laughs> you're 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 asking that to the 1986 winner of the plate at wimbledon the <laughs> i've only seen wimbledon your plate title. pam i've held That's that right plate. i forgot um i actually think it's a pretty cool event i i hadn't watched it that much through the years i had an interest to watch it this year Donna didn't think she'd get the, she got one of the last invites and after a pretty bad Asian swing where Donna only won one match and a couple of tournaments, went all the way back to Europe and was home like three or four days and then got the confirmation that she had gotten in. I think Lynette and Vekic were the last two in because they had the wild card go to Julin. And Donna was very extremely happy with, know that if she went on a streak she could win six hundred and fifty thousand dollars so got her got herself back to china and ended up saying that the tournament did a really good job um so i thought the crowd seemed good i think the excitement of having a couple of chinese players in it and one obviously with a great chance to win i think that helped and look at who's won that tournament in the past i think barty's won it venus williams has won it so why not and there was a time, wasn't there, where it used to follow the WTA finals and that always felt wrong. You know, it just mm. felt like completely the wrong way around. But I think it was much better this year that it um, preceded it. And yeah, I, I, I thought it was a I thought it was a really good week then. So while well, the WTA was in Zuhai, the ATP were in Vienna and Basel this week. The Vienna title was won by Yannick Sinner, beating Daniel Medvedev in an awesome final three hours seven six four six six three en route to that final he'd also beaten tokyo champion ben shelton lorenzo sonigo francis tiafo andre rublev rublev incidentally by reaching the semi-finals sealed his his qualification for turin it was an awesome week for yannick sinner who not only is putting together these fantastic results but also quite crucially given how much he'd expect them to play over coming years seems really to have turned the what was a catastrophic head-to-head a match-up against Daniel Medvedev turned it around completely and that that feels amazing to me having watched their final in Miami this year from courtside thinking he's just got no chance the game does not work he doesn't have a good enough drop shot he doesn't have enough variety in his game to exploit the weaknesses of Daniel Medvedev. Well, that is so far from the truth now. Um, 
and that was only six months ago. It, it's it's really impressive stuff, I think, from from Yannick Sinemat. Yes, I have been so impressed with him in Beijing and and again in Vienna. It's kind of like a home tournament for him almost. You know, he, he's born in that in that part of Italy, which is right on the Austrian border. And it, it felt like, you know, he really wanted to win it. He was he was receiving a lot of a lot of support there. And I think the thing about Yannick Sinner is that, you know, for for people like us who who talk about tennis every week, he's been one of those guys who's who's been committed to the sort of slow and steady trust the process improvement. And I think sometimes it can almost feel like maybe he'd been standing still a little bit, but behind the scenes in the background I think he had been improving a lot and he'd got a good team around him and he'd been improving his physicality. He's, he's, he's much stronger I think than he used to be sort of in his legs as much as anything. And he's he's done a lot of groundwork, but it does feel like the past couple of tournaments where he's beaten Medvedev and beaten Alcaraz as well it feels like the biggest sort of surge that he's made in his career the biggest sort of statement tennis that I've ever seen from Yannick Sinner and he's been absolutely brilliant to watch and he's been just a absolute handful for some really really good players and what I loved about this this final is that he kind of beat Medvedev in in two different ways he was he was using the variety in the first set, you know, not not, you know, crazy variety, but occasionally throwing in drop shots and occasionally a slice backhand and mainly just a commitment to get to the net. He's not, you know, he's not Stefan Edberg up at the net. He's not Pam Shriver up at the net, but he is trying to incorporate that into his game. And I think it worked for him in that first set. But in the third set, he he put that away and he, he, he actually kind of out-Medvedev'd Medvedev and it was grueling rallies from the back of the court that he was winning. He had to come through a 20-minute through a game at one point, converting his ninth break point, 13th juice. You know, it was, it was resilient stuff. And I think he just showed a few different sides to himself, which is, which is what you need to be able to win the biggest tournaments and beat the best players in the world. And... I've loved seeing this this transformation in him over the last couple of weeks. I think I have been guilty of viewing him a little bit through a Carlos Alcaraz lens and being most excited about Yannick Sinner when he's playing Carlos Alcaraz. But he's beating other top players now really consistently, turning that head-to-head round against Medvedev and just being a great watch. I, I love watching him just tee off and hit groundstroke winners. It's It's kind of mesmerizing the way he can do that and um, obviously we need to see it at the slams I think that's massive for Yannick Sinner in 2024 he needs to bring this level to the slams and until he does there will still be that slight question mark I suppose but it really feels to me like he's he's stepped up in in the last few weeks and I I back him to bring this at the slams now in a way that maybe I didn't in the past I've been so impressed I started watching that match at 2-1. Sorry, just quickly, that 2-1 game, that marathon game, I I was then glued to that match for the rest of it, including Medvedev imitating (laughs) sinners, like maybe walking a little bit gingerly, maybe had an injury. Medvedev was becoming that piece of work again. (laughs) But just two quick things on why that head-to-head was able to be turned around. Darren Cahill is an expert in everything coaching related, but especially the X's and Y's of figuring out why the head-to-head didn't work for Yannick Sinner prior to the last couple of matches. 
And then also they use Golden Set Data Analytics and they get every possible bit of information from all the other matchups. And I can just imagine how Yannick would have been given the last couple of matches, a different head-to-head, and he's such a good athlete, he could carry it out. But that match yesterday was right up there with the best of the year. I feel like this is kind of a whole um, offshoot podcast in itself, Pam, but you've just opened up such a, a rich seam of um, of discussion. I, I can't help but ask what, uh, and Golden Set isn't the only provider of, of data analytics, is it, to, to players? There are a couple of other prominent ones as well, but, but Golden Set definitely is one of the ones that a lot of players use. What percentage of players, let's say in the top 50, would be using a service like that right right now, would you say? I, I think most. Um, I think a majority, although the one I've been working with still doesn't want it, doesn't want to do it. Some, or, or what I, I think we might do on the coaching side is just coaches sometimes just get the information and the player doesn't even have to know. If, if they don't want to deal with that kind of detail or are afraid to like open it up, but there's lots of ways you can get it done. And I've been thinking hard on how to help the player I'm trying to help. But I do think Catherine, it's a majority. It's been one of the biggest changes in the last five years. And Djokovic talked about it at length at the U S open on our ESPN set about how long he's been using it. He was to me was the really first one to go all in on this. And now obviously there's no better example of using analytics, video analysis, everything than Djokovic's success in the last few years. And and with your coaching hat on, I, pre- I presume you're a fan? You think it's a good development? I think any tool that you can have that helps the modern athlete, whether it's better mindset training or data analytics, it's kind of like the Navratilova philosophy that I saw up close in the late 70s and 80s. Do not leave one stone unturned. You have to look behind each and everything to try and get the extra one, two, three, four percent whether it's in a matchup like the center Medvedev or whether it's just generally to know the strengths of your game. So I'm, uh, I'm for it, but I, I, I haven't gone, I haven't been successful in getting um Donna to go all in and I don't think she ever will so now we have to figure out on the coaching end and still help her with it. It's so interesting isn't it because I guess the way players engage with data analytics must vary wildly. I guess there are some that probably want to sit down and read all the numbers and and nerd out on it all and there are probably some that that want to unturn that stone as it were but you know, just give me the facts, ma'am. Want their want their coach to do all the digestion for them and say, you look at the numbers and you 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 tell me what to take from it. Just just give me the cliff notes, and I'm sure you know players fall at, at various different points on the spectrum. But um, yeah, it's so fascinating and probably something that we should we should probably put on our list of things to to look into for for future friends shows. Um, Yannick Sinner. Grand Slam champion 2024, Pam? Um, I think he's going to get to a final in 2024. I think he'll win one in 2025. Yeah, he's methodical, isn't he? Tick off tick off the milestones one by one. Um, over to Basel, where Felix Auger-Aliassime has done what Daniel Medvedev can't do. <laughs> Daniel Medvedev, incidentally, the hunt for him goes on to... Uh, 
to repeat win a title, let alone defend one. Because um, that's what Auger Asim has done out of nowhere in Basel. Saved a match point against Alexander Shevchenko in the quarterfinals and thrashed Holger Rune, who, having got some form together at the start of the tournament, was awful in the semi 6-3-6-3 for Orgelia Seam against Runa. And then he beat Hubert Herkatch in, of course, two tie-break sets on Sunday because Herkatch can only play marathon matches, apparently. I I've no idea where, how and why this is this has come. Um but I am pleased for Felix Orgelia Seam because he had started to look weary. He had started to look weighed down by the experience of 2023 which has been pretty terrible for him quite frankly pretty terrible relative to what expectations were at the end of 2022 when he went on that tear at events exactly like this one he won three back to back didn't he and we were saying it's happening and it just did not happen this year and this this result does does not a year make. It doesn't change what's happened this year. It it has been thoroughly disappointing for him. But hopefully this will just be a little bit of fuel to his fire um, of belief. I still have I still have my question marks about his game. I really do. I'm I'm not sure there's enough there in terms of Plan B and C um, to to compete with Alcaraz's. Um, and sinners, but but I, I'm pleased for him, Matt. Yeah, I think seeing seeing players go through a, a rut and such a such a dry spell is always very very difficult to watch. And on the flip side, seeing them get out of it is is kind of one of the best things to witness. And I don't know, like I'm sure Pam can speak on this, but I. I do feel that sometimes just I mean obviously Medvedev hasn't uh, hasn't felt this with his inability to win the same tournament twice but sometimes it does strike me that players just have places that they like and where they feel good and sort of feel comfortable and kind of kind of from the off it just felt like there was something a bit different about Auger seem this week compared to the way he had been and it just clicked for him and I thought he was brilliant in the last two matches. Those were the ones I watched most closely and he was you could tell that his confidence level was higher. He was he was going for shots on his backhand, for example, that he doesn't usually go for. And he was you know, he he's got a game, Orger Aliasim. I completely agree with you that he there's I, I doubt some of his adaptability and his flexibility and his and his backup plans. But to me there's no reason why he can't be a bit like Rublev and have a really good plan A. He's got a, such a big serve, such a big forehand. And when that's working, he should be able to beat most players. And he just hasn't been able to get that going all season. And he did this week. He said that he never lost belief. He was pretty punchy. He said, I'm back, but also I haven't, I've never lost my confidence. But it really felt like he was playing with a lack of confidence throughout the season. And I know he had an injury around the springtime, which maybe lingered and, and, and didn't help him. But it was it was a really different Phoenix Auger seam. And I was just very pleased to see it because, yeah, it's been it's been a really, really tough watch for him this season. I was just going to say, like, when you see players have slumps and they happen both tours, right? And you don't have a career on the tennis tour without having some of these dips. 
But this one for Felix this past year, you know, some slumps really feel so uncomfortable. And I, I felt extremely uncomfortable. So the fact that he was having a breakthrough indoors, the, the conditions that he loves the most, you know, that's probably where it was going to happen. It wasn't going to be outdoors. And now we'll see, like, is this guy going to be more consistent? I don't know. He's made weird decisions on his team coaching. I still don't understand the Uncle Tony fit or why, where that came from. Um, but anyway, such a lovely man. And I hope, I hope this gets him to a better, more consistent level. Cause that was one of the most uncomfortable slumps I've experienced from a distance for a long time. Yeah. Same. Yeah, I agree. He, he'll move on to Paris, uh, where Alcaraz is back and fit to play. So forget everything I said about my, my desperate concerns for, for Carlos Alcaraz and his, multi-injury situation last week. He is back, uh, as is Novak Djokovic, playing for the first time since Davis Cup six weeks ago. Uh, we've already seen, as I mentioned, Alex de Menor beat Andy Murray again uh, for the sixth straight time. And for the second straight time, I think de Menor came from 2-5 down, this time a double breakdown, saved match points. Um, it's it's wearying watching Andy Murray at the moment, isn't it? It's 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 a tough watch. Yeah, I think um, I think Katie Bolter summed it up best by just saying, "No more Andy Murray, Alex de Menor in my life, please, ever again. Thank you." Uh, like I didn't think it could get more brutal and painful than than his match against Dumanor in Beijing, where he was five two up, had multiple match points and lost. And this time he was in that exact situation again, except he was a double break up in that final set rather than just a single break. Served for it twice, had a match point on his own serve. And yeah, it's it's Look, I think at this stage in his career, it does feel like there's a bit of a match-up problem for Andy Murray against Alex de Menor. I don't think, I don't think it's all in his head, but the end of that match did feel like it was just totally in Andy Murray's head. He, I don't think he his level didn't completely fall apart, but he he tightened, and you know, it's just it's just uncomfortable to see kind of an all-time great, and I, I consider Andy Murray an all-time great, get that tight and. And I know it happens to to kind of everyone as uh, as they get older and and you get deep into your career or most players maybe not know about Djokovic, but it's it's really apparent with Andy Murray in this matchup with Alex de Menor how it seems like his nerve has gone a little bit in those closing stages and de Menor knows it and he just hangs in there and just sort of sneaks past him at the finish line and yeah it's it's been a really tough year for Andy Murray really since the start of the season when he was playing so well I don't think he's won many matches sort of consecutively since then and I think Wimbledon was was just such a huge bummer for him he was playing really well and he had an opportunity there and the curfew struck and he didn't quite get over the line against Sitsipas and it's been very very difficult for him ever since and you know that might be his season done who knows whether he'll be used by Leon Smith at the Davis Cup but if he is going to be used his his next match will be against Novak Djokovic so that that doesn't feel like much of a consolation yeah well just 
just just briefly on that because you know we'll we'll be doing plenty of coverage for for the Davis Cup finals when they come Matt's going to be out there in Malaga he's going to be in Seville as well for the Billie Jean King Cup finals but Dan Evans suffered a, a horrendous looking calf injury uh, mid-match. He was 4-1 up on uh, Francis Tiafo in Vienna. It was one of those injuries where instantly you knew it, it, it was game over. Absolutely gutting moment for him. Uh, and we do now know, unsurprisingly, that he that's his season over. He's out of the Davis Cup finals. He would have been Britain's number two. Cam Norrie on ranking is still Britain's number one, but he's in an awful trough of form. Um, and in the words of Simon, your friend of mine, Simon Briggs's piece today, uh, he tweeted, shock in Brit tennis circles as Cam Norrie, one of the tour's great troopers, finally takes a holiday. Um because citing a knee injury, he's pulled out of Paris, but it does sound like it's it's burnout as much as it is a knee injury. Now, if Cam Norrie is fit to play and selected, he would play at one uh, in the Davis Cup finals and he would take on Novak Djokovic. But, but that is very much an if at this stage. And if Cam Norrie doesn't play, Andy Murray is is the top-ranked British man. He plays at one with probably Jack Draper playing at two. So that is, I mean, uh, it's devastating for, for Dan Evans and it, it's a tough, tough watch to see everything we were saying about Felix Auger-Aliassime and repeat re, uh, re Cam Norrie. He's been a tough watch recently, but potential interesting state of affairs developing there with the uh, the British Davis Cup team, which we will keep an eye on. Uh, it is Team Rarinka tonight which I'm trying to get excited about, but worry it could be sad. <laughs> uh, but let's focus on, on the potential excitement of that. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to see Djokovic and Alcaraz play again. Don't like to go too long without the potential for a Djokovic-Alcaraz match. Um, a couple of other bits of news to wrap up from the week. Jensen Brooksby has received an 18-month ban for three whereabouts failures in a 12-month period. Uh, the ban will run until January the 4th, 2025. That's the second high-profile case of this this season after a similar thing happened to Mikhail Immer and, and he announced his retirement from the sport shortly after. Um, again, Pam, this is, this is probably worthy of a whole podcast in itself, but where do you come down on this. Maria Sakkari was quite outspoken a while ago, wasn't she, about the the onus and the responsibility on players almost being too much with regards to to doping and, and having to cite your whereabouts 365 days a year and not even been able to take supplements or paracetamol if you've got a headache and all of that. But, you know, we know what a, a challenge it is to, to keep a clean sport as well. And we all desperately, desperately want that. Where do you where do you come down on this? Is it too much? Are the expectations too much for players? Well, when I consider where it all started, which was U.S. Open 1988, a month before Seoul Olympic Games, which was after the U.S. Open, and that's when I had my first drug test. That's when tennis first went into the anti-doping official programming. And now when I, again, this is part of my experience of, helping Donna in the last 12 months, 
is really realizing this whereabouts thing where how you have to administer and how this is not something you can forget like you have this has to be a, if you're a professional tennis player you have to administrate this part of your life it's almost like nutrition hydration sleep drug testing administrate like it's just a part of the job so Okay, if you have some executive functioning organizational issues that make you forget, then have somebody on your team 100% responsible for making sure you do all the reporting you need to do because otherwise you're going to be in a situation where Brooksby finds himself and Yimer are getting out of the sport, forcing him to retire. And, and people who have two dings waiting for the third, thinking, what if my cell phone goes out? What if the doorbell doesn't ring? What if the uh, the hotel calls the wrong room number? Then your three strikes are you at, you know so don't get to two strikes. Maybe get to one in twelve months because there are errors, but do not get to two or certainly three. Wimbledon's plans for the park development were approved at a high-tempered Marathon Merton Council planning meeting on Thursday. We don't often report on Merton Council meetings, but here we are. Um, This is, I know that sounds really boring, but this is a really big deal for Wimbledon. Uh, I think when plans were first put forward for the development um, of Wimbledon Park to expand uh, the site of uh, the All England Club and enable Wimbledon not only to have an extra show court across across the road, but also to be able to stage qualifying on-site at Wimbledon rather than off-site as they do at the moment. I think when plans were first put forward, you just sort of thought, oh, yeah, great idea. Sounds brilliant. That'll, you know, Wimbledon are very good at infrastructure projects. This will be plain sailing, no problem. Look forward to it being unveiled in a few years' time. Well, local residents have, have had a thing or two to say about it and see the curfew, you know, local residents have have quite a strong say on these matters and they've been presenting quite a a blockage, part of which has now been passed. There are still there are still other blockages to be passed. Uh, they need the backing of neighbouring Wandsworth Council, which is which is my my council. I've got no say, but uh <laughs> but there we go. Um and then it also needs to go to the the GLC. It needs to to pass through the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. So it's a big first step. There is still more to be overcome. This is this is the very opposite of plain sailing for Wimbledon. But again, we will follow progress closely. Pam, would you like to hear about our competition winner? Oh, Pam, you've got something to say about Before Merton Council? Before the competition, yes, I do. Uh, only I just want to put in perspective what two of the majors had to go through when their neighborhoods and their clubs didn't present enough opportunity for growth. That was in 77, the last year the U.S. Open was in Forest Hills, 78, and ever since, Flushing Meadow beside a huge park. And of course, the last year of Kuyong at the Australian Open was 87. 1988 was the first year at Melbourne Park. So the fact that Wimbledon has been able to figure this out while staying in this you know historic site where the tournament's been played for what, 100 years? Matt, you're the more the historian. It's good for them to figure it out because we know it's not easy. Yeah, absolutely. Good luck to them. Uh, competition winner, Pam. Would you like to hear about Ed Bowling? 
Ed is our... 100%. Ed is the winner of our Davis Cup finals competition. He gets two tickets to the semi-finals on Saturday the 25th of November in Malaga. He gets a hotel room for two nights, economy flights... Uh, to and from Malaga. He says, Dear David, Catherine, Matt, Hannah and the rest of the Tennis Pod team. He's left Pam out of that list. Terrible, Ed. Terrible. Um, You have no idea how happy this message made me. Thank you so much and I'd be absolutely delighted to accept the prize. He says he actually got the message when he was en route to his local tennis club. Shout out to Linkside LTC in Wanstead, best club in London. And you're all welcome any time for a hit or a game of doubles. Uh, he said, after going through the usual, usual suspicions of which, which friend is trying to wind me up here, I was absolutely ecstatic when I realised it was genuine. Uh, his favourite player, past and president, is past and present is Federer for artistry and Enam for grit, though he might be underselling her backhand. And he says, present is Sinner for timing and for giving us Sinner Alcaraz and Ange Jabeur for being a complete magician and lovely person. Uh, He's looking forward to full tennis immersion and maybe a cocktail or two in Malaga. And he's going to be bringing his partner, Josie, whose favourite players are also Carlos and Ons. So Ed and Josie, you seem very well matched and uh, we wish you a wonderful time in Malaga with the possibility of bumping into Matt Roberts. What what more could a tennis fan want, Pam? It's, did you say his last name was Bowling? B- yes. I said it with trepidation because I'm not 100% sure of the pronunciation. B-O-H-L-I-N-G. So not exactly like Sounds the like his last. Is bowling a sport? Yeah, his last name should be tennis, sort of. But um, I think that's an amazing email to write as a thank you. That was fantastic. Love it. (laughs) Thanks, Pam. Thanks, Pam. And well done, Ed. And uh, enjoy your trip. Uh, Tickets to the Davis Cup finals in Malaga are now available from the official Davis Cup website. And a link to that can be found in our show notes. We have a mascot for this episode, and it is... Do me. Do you think I'm pronouncing that right, Matt? D U M I. You do. Thank you. Um, well, the alternative is dummy, which is not dummy, is it? It's do me. Do me. Do me the Dachshund, owned by Christiane. Do me is a two year old red standard Dachshund living in Berlin and, and on an island at the North Sea, um, which. Makes no sense to me, but sounds very exotic. Uh, Doomy is rarely expected, uh, rarely expected from a dog of his size. Doomy, from the South African Zulu name Doomisani, meaning praise, is in training to be a man trailer to find missing people. Uh, bred to chase badgers out of their burrows, Doomy is fearless, and what he's missing in size he makes up with uh, in personality. As big as his snout is also his ego. They don't say for nothing when a Dachshund looks in the mirror, he sees a lion, which which is very Billie Jean energy. Uh, Since Billie Jean has a Dachshund friend, shout out to Neville, and seems to like these little sausages, Doomy would like to invite Billie Jean to Berlin for the 2024 Labour Cup to show her some dog parks and Berliner squirrels. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, well, Christiane, I would urge you to to write to British Airways and urge them to <laughs> change their dogs on planes policy. 
because we are one of the only nations uh, to have a very strict no dogs on planes policy. I have looked into it. Uh, but hopefully that will change in the future and uh, Billie Jean can make another Dachshund friend. Doomy is absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And I'm very partial to a sausage dog. Uh, we have our mascots. David's got Maisie. No need to remind anybody what they achieved this week. I've got Zenya and Matt has got Darwin. Billie Jean is sponsored by Billie Jean King and Alana Kloss. We have our executive producers, Jamie, Hannah, Andrew and Pam. Will you join us for some shout outs? Please. Yes, please. Take it away, Matt. I'm excited for this. We have great shout outs today. We have four of them. We uh, we put out a call for people to get their shout outs in this week and we've been we've been inundated with shout outies. So we are now upping to four an episode until the end of the year. So we start with Saga Shriramagiri, who I met in New York. Saga is lovely. He lives in Hoboken, New Jersey. Pam, we're relying on you for Hoboken material. Well, it's right across the it's right across the Lincoln Tunnel from uh, the amazing Manhattan and uh, Hoboken. I believe Frank Frank Sinatra is from Hoboken. Very good. Wow, Pam, love that. Thank you, Saga. We've also got Peter Figasinski, who is from Vancouver, and. Peter says, I used to work for Matt's official sponsor, Wilson, as their lead graphic designer for their tennis rackets, including ones used by Roger and Serena and, of course, Grigor. And Peter has in the past sent us some fantastic stuff of Wilson, Wilson gear that was designed but never used, you know, stuff like a special 24th slam racket for Serena and a and a Tokyo Olympics racket for Roger Federer so uh, yeah i know i know peter that, that's that's a very cool job that's an awesome job it's interesting how you've mentioned both vancouver who hosted labor cup this year and then berlin who has it next year yes mm. Thank you, Peter. We always mention uh, Peter McNamara when we get a Peter shout out. Any opportunity to mention uh, Macca? What a what a guy he was. So thank you, Peter. We've also got a happy birthday to Megan Moriarty. What a name! Happy birthday, Megan. That's a, there are some names: Megan Shaughnessy, uh, Megan Markle. I know she's a good tennis player. <laughs> Megan Shaughnessy and Megan Markle, all the big Megans. Uh, that is a shout out birthday gift from her father, Michael. And Michael, Michael was a high school classmate of Chris Evert. Michael? Wow. He's just dropped that in there. In Fort Lauderdale, Florida. That's, that's pretty amazing. Chrissy... Uh about to have her 69th birthday uh december 29th so that gives us an idea of the age of that shout out person <laughs> you've been outed michael <laughs> sorry michael michael Stick. <laughs> thank you michael and uh happy birthday megan and the final shout out is for the first person to fill in the form when we requested new shout outies and that is david whittaker Ah, uh, <laughs> your dad. 
He says, on, Pam, he, gets, he, he, gets, he gets a few mentions during the year. He says, I didn't understand podcasts for a long time. And it wasn't until the tennis podcast had been going for three or four years that I twigged. Now I listen to podcasts all the time. And of course, to every edition of the tennis podcast. Love it. Nothing like family. What he's saying there, Pam, <laughs> is that his daughter made a podcast every week and daily, daily during Grand Slams. Uh, on his favourite subject for six years, and he didn't listen, uh, but is now, but has now changed his ways and is a very big fan, uh, and that's that's great. Better late than never, Dad. Uh, thank you. I love that he filled out the form <laughs> within seconds. <laughs> uh, thank you, Dad. I can't say thank you, David. Too weird. You can say thank you, David. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Thanks, Dad. Uh, Pam, thank you. It is always such a tremendous pleasure. Um, Next time we see you, we will be on a barge in Melbourne, all of us. Perfect. And I will be better prepared for January than I was for this podcast. Thanks for uh, getting me out of my parenting trenches back into the tennis talk. It was really fun. Thanks for having me. From one trench to another. Pam, it is always such a pleasure. Matt, thank you. Thank we don't you. need David, do we? We don't need David. But we will We will gladly have him back. We'll be back when? Uh, I think you and I are doing a post-WTA finals group stage roundup. Either, we are. Either Friday night or Saturday morning. TBC. TBC. Well, we'll be back to round up the group stages and then, of course, we'll be back again to round up the semis and finals and goings on in Paris. So we'll see you or hear from you. No, you'll hear from us. It's going brilliantly, isn't it? Maybe we do need David back. You'll hear from us again over the weekend. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening. We'll speak to you soon. <laughs> 